we would have honest conversations about here are things that we need to do to be able to try to get you more exposed so that when your time comes, you can hit the ground running. Because it's one thing to get the job. It's another thing to be able to get the job and be productive when you get there. If you're not in this business, you can be out in two or three years. Hi, I'm Dan Krikorian. And I'm Patrick Carney. And welcome to Slapping Glass, exploring basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome the head coach of NCAA Division II, East Stroudsburg University, Jeff Wilson. Coach Wilson is here today to discuss mentoring and preparing assistant coaches to become head coaches, playing through the post on offense, and we talk the value of great cutters and added benefits of pressing during the always fun start, sub, or sit. Coaches, one of the best ways to help support what we do is by becoming a member of SG+. We now have coaches and staffs from over 40 different countries who are happy to call members, and they get access to SGTV's over 500 detailed breakdown video library by both ourselves and coaches like Stan Van Gundy, Ryan Pannone, Martin Schiller, Josh Schertz, and many more, as well as the weekly deep dive newsletter, access to a private coaching community, and much more. For more information, email us at info at slappingglass.com or visit slappingglass.com to sign up today. Thanks for the support. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Jeff Wilson. Coach, thank you very much for making the time for us. We're excited to talk to you today. Appreciate you guys having me on. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. Coach, let's dive right in. One of the things that, in talking to other coaches that you've coached with, we just had Coach Potts on not too long ago, is your ability to mentor and prepare assistant coaches for future, hopefully, head coaching roles. And you've done it a couple of times and something that we would love to dive in with you on to start. And so we'd just love to know your thoughts on when you bring in an assistant coach or you have you know those on your staff, how you think about prepping them for that potential next role some point in their future. Going back to, I guess, when I started in the profession, I started with a gentleman by the name of Sal Mentasana. Sal came from College of William & Mary, and he came in the Stroudsburg University. I was a graduate assistant at the time, and then he kept me on as his first full-time assistant coach. And we were together nine years at the Stroudsburg University, and then we went to Lehigh. I was associate head coach at Lehigh for six years. And probably one of the reasons why I think mentoring for me is so important is because I had a great mentor. He gave me a lot of responsibility. At that time, it was just he and I. There was no other GA. They gave him a full-time assistant, took away the GA. So it was kind of a two-man shop. So everything from recruiting coordinator to on-court coaching, fundraising, those type of things, he exposed me to, which really allowed me to, I think, when I became a head coach, not have any real surprise. So to go to your specific question, what do I look for in assistant coaches? First of all, I want good people. I'm looking to bring in either graduate assistants or full-time assistants, whatever it may be, volunteer. I have a volunteer assistant with me right now. I want people that are good people. I try to do my homework as best as possible. The other aspect of that is I try to hire, to the best of my ability, people that I know or people that I have relationships with outside that can recommend highly guys to come into my program. If at all possible, I've had some pretty good success with this, especially recently, is I've had people that have been in the program, whether as players or as GAs. Coach Potts, you mentioned him a little bit earlier. He was probably a little bit of an outlier. He was with me for 13 years. But his high school coach, John Deeb, was a volunteer assistant coach on the Lehigh staff. Coach Potts played at Moravian. We got to know each other. They're only about five minutes apart. So I got to know him. And when I became a head coach, he was somebody that stood out to me to kind of bring aboard. And he was with me for 13 years. So that common thread, I think, has kind of circulated through. Coach, so just to kind of dive in on, I guess, the mentoring part of all of this, when you do bring someone in and you're trying to you know, mentor, like you mentioned, how much of it is tactically things that you're trying to prepare them for versus 
sort of organizationally, like things you need to know as a head coach from budget to travel to, you know, all the fun behind the scenes stuff versus, you know, knowing how to work with people, organize teams and stuff like that. I mean, I know it's all of it, but what do you find yourself kind of mentoring the most? I think in some respects, it depends on the position on the staff. My full-time assistant now is Sean Hanna. He was with me as a GA, so I kind of knew him a little bit and what he was able to fill there when he went to Lafayette, which again is only about 30 minutes down the road. Got to see him a lot. He stayed connected with the program, and I really got to see him work and grow and mature under Coach Hanlon down at Lafayette. So when it came time to hire an assistant coach, he was one of five guys, and he kind of bubbled to the top, but I knew his skill set a little bit, right? So when he came in, and this would be the same for anybody is that's my full-time assistant. The first thing along that line is he's going to be my recruiting coordinator. That's critical. That was something that stood out to me about showing we're a state institution. So Philadelphia, Pennsylvania is very important for us. If you go into Philadelphia, he knows everybody. That's the home base per se. And then we've been able to kind of go broad base beyond that into New Jersey, New York, a little bit down into Maryland, Delaware. But we still have to make our living in what I call Philadelphia in the District 1 area. So that's kind of where we need to be. And he had that skill set. So the first thing in trying to mentor him is having him being able to feel comfortable. Sometimes he's going to have to tell me what to do. A lot of times, the recruiting process, here are the phone calls you need to make. Here are the kids you need to evaluate. You need to be at this tournament, those type of things. And he needs to be pretty firm with that. That was something I thought he needed to learn a little bit, right? Because he went from being a GA where I was probably, you know, funneling some things down to where now he has to funnel things up to me. And he's done a really good job of learning how to do that over the couple of years he's been with me. And then the other aspect of that is as a head coach, watching him being able to delegate to other assistants on the staff. How are we putting together our senior recruiting, our junior recruiting, those type of things? How are we preparing ourselves when we go on the road? Like with the multiple events, how is he delegating who's gone where? And I want to try to give him as much experience as that as possible. Now, he and I will have a lot of conversations behind closed doors and say, hey, when you do this, you might want to think about it in this manner, right? And I want him to run the recruiting meetings as the recruiting coordinator as much as possible. Like, I don't really want to be the guy that's in there saying, we're going to do this, this, and this. I want him to take that responsibility. Because when he's the head coach, he's going to have to be able to do that as well. That's just from the recruiting standpoint, right? So at the Division II level, you're doing a little bit of everything. So what I like to try to do is see what guys' skill sets are coming in. My GAs are typically with me for two years. So it's a two-year window for them to network, for them to become acquainted with everything within the program. And I'm very open with, you know, at the end of your two years, I want to be able to move you to some place. You know, whether it's as an assistant coach, a head coach, a volunteer coach, a, a basketball ops guy, whatever it may be. And some of that's going to be dependent upon what your skill set is and what you can show over that period of time. But they're going to be on the phone recruiting. They're going to be out on the road recruiting. They're going to be involved in our recruiting business. That's just the recruiting aspect. I'll also get them involved with fundraising, academics. Every assistant that I have has two or three or four players that they're going to mentor through the year. That gives them that mentoring a little bit. And then on the court, we break it up kind of by position. I'll take the big guys. One of my GAs, Kyle Pope, will be with me. And then Coach Hanna will take the perimeter players. Coach Thornton, my volunteer, and my other GA, Eric Rigg, will be with Sean. And I don't really want to overmanage that, right? I want them to be able to take that. We obviously talk about these are the things I would like you to cover, but I'm not looking at that. I'm worried about the big guys. I'm worried about Kyle. And then I know specifically with me, Kyle's really good with film and he's really good with individual workouts. And he's shown that over the course of the year, this will be his second year. So as we went through last year, I gave him more and more responsibility as the year went on specifically with that group. And then when we get into the team aspect, I kind of take over a little bit more, but from an individual standpoint, breakdown standpoint, that's kind of how we do it. But Everybody's on the staff is going to be exposed to all those errors. And coach, following up, if we look more on the court, you mentioned you'll assign the assistants have wings or bigs or guards. So when you're practice planning or when you're going to be with the team, how do you view delegating or the role of the assistant in your practices? Yeah, so that'll change 
probably day to day. Again, I want to kind of expose them to a lot of different things. So some days I won't take a team at all. I'll talk for a base if we're playing, if we're scrimmaging or anything like that. Some days I'll take a team, maybe the top team. Some days I'll take the second team. And then I'll put different assistants with the other teams. Some days I might just go up in the stands and watch, watch them coach, watch the team play, take notes, and then kind of break it down after maybe 10, 15 minutes and be able to come back and say, here's some things that I watch that I might miss if I'm coaching, right? But I'm also giving the assistant coaches the opportunity to coach, to, you know, sub strategically, do whatever they want to do. Obviously within the framework, that's going to be something that we're not going to compromise and kind of go from there. But and some days I'll ref, you know, some days I'll call a lot of bad calls and they'll, you know, I'll have players get pissed off at me, but hey, that's better than getting mad at the assistants if they have a whistle in their mouth sometimes. <laughs> and coach, pulling a little bit out, I just find it really interesting where you'll have some days where you'll just watch and go up in the stands. How did you kind of get there as a coach to where you were willing, like, okay, I'm going to step back. I'm going to step away from the court and just watch. I think you have to have trust in your assistants. So if you have trust in your assistants and they show they're competent in what they're doing and you're trying to build that area where, you know, they can take over for you, that's one aspect. A lot of it's gut, it's your gut feel. Like here's something we need this day that maybe we didn't need earlier in the week, whatever it may be. Is it a gut feeling in that you think maybe, you know, I need to see the team from a different perspective or the team just needs to hear a different voice maybe today and not so much mine all the time? I think a little bit of both. I think one thing with I think more perspective in the example I talked about with maybe going into the stands and watching, but there's also cases like if we're doing position groups, right? Like coach Hannah will take the guard and I'll very rarely be in that, right? Which is probably good for a guard. The big guys might not like that, (laughs) right? But, you know, even in that situation, like as a head coach, I have to be able to trust my partner, who's coach Pope, to be able to take film sessions breakdown sessions, put those things together and be able to take those meetings as we got comfortable throughout the year. And he showed his competence, right? I was able to do that pretty easily to be able to say, Hey, these guys are going to hear me at practice. They're going to hear me in scouting reports. They're going to hear me in games. They don't need to hear me every time they're turning around. And I thought that was very beneficial for us as a team throughout the years, but specifically last year, talking about last year, because again, the assistant was showing his competence. So I was giving them more and more responsibility as we went. Coach Pat and I were recently kind of discussing with another coach, like just the art of in practice coaching, where all different coaches from the head coach down to the assistants, GAs, they're watching practice. They have different responsibilities. Something's going on during the practice and they all have ideas of to how to help or to, to try to coach and always riding that line of having way too many voices or people stopping it too much versus not stopping it versus who's stopping it. You know, all the things that can happen, like the art of actually knowing when to interject versus not interject as an assistant and as a head coach. Do you talk about that with your staff at all about how much you want them interjecting in practice versus letting it go? And, you know, that whole balance. We talk about it quite a bit. I mean, our style is a little bit different and everybody has a different style. So I don't want to pigeonhole anybody, but we run in press, right? And if we're constantly stopping, 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 right? Our guys get conditioned to stop, right? So I let a lot of things go. And I think a lot of times when new assistants are coming on board with me, they kind of wonder why I let so many things go before I stop it and correct, right? I've had guys like say, like, how are you just letting that go? Like, well, they have to learn how to play, right? And they have to learn how to play through things and running and pressing, you can't just keep stopping the clock, right? Stopping things. So that's not how we want them to play. That's not the mindset we want them to have. So we have, as coaches, have to be able to do that. Now, I talked a little bit about when we get into the team aspect, I take over a little bit more. So on most situations when, let's say I'm teaching something or we're going, you know, breakdown situations, I'll be the guy that's doing the majority of talking. The assistants, they'll be doing their coaching on the side right? So if we have them split up in two teams, there might be two coaches. If everybody's in practice that day, there'll be two coaches with each team. As they see things, they'll sub guys out and that's when they'll do their coach on the sideline. And then what we talk about is if I'm talking, everybody has to stop talking, right? Players have to stop talking. Coaches have to stop their corrections at that time. And then they can come back to it after I'm done talking, 
right? Like everybody should be on board, at least listening to what's going on in the big picture. And kind of moving up a little bit in the role, you know, going from an assistant to a head coach. So I guess, I don't know what you'd call the executive decisions or the things that a coach has to do more off the court. So like as an assistant, you can kind of live in an idea world where you're just coming up with ideas for the head coach. You're just analyzing things to just give the head coach information. But then for you as a head coach, you then have to be the decision maker. And I know that that's a big process to go from an idea person to a decision-making person. And what did you learn? And then also, what do you kind of help mentor or assistants with to try to make that leap easier? That's a great question. I'll give you a funny story. So Sal and I were together for 15 years, almost like brothers. I remember being at Lehigh. It was probably about the time where we both knew I needed to try to be a head coach because I was given a lot of things that I thought we should be doing. And we probably didn't have the personnel to do some of the things that I was thinking about doing. And he definitely made the right decision by not doing them. And I remember we were having a conversation multiple times, but one day he looked at me and he goes, yeah, those decisions are a lot different, you know, two feet down. So you just keep throwing them out there. And when you're head coach, then you can make that decision, right? <laughs> so that was kind of eye-opening to me. And it's true. You know, when you're an assistant coach, you can throw a lot of things out there, but you know, the head coach is going to be the guy making the decision, right? And the winner or the loss is going to go to the head coach. So the head coach is going to look at it maybe in some cases differently. But what I try to tell my guys is, number one, throw as much at me as possible because I need to hear it from a different perspective. And I think the way our staff is structured is good in that respect because I have a full-time assistant. His role is a little bit different than some of the other guys. I got two young GAs, right, who are in a lot of cases fresh out of college or guys that are just trying to get into college basketball that are looking at it from a little different perspective. And then I have a volunteer assistant coach who had been a head coach for 22 years, albeit at the high school level, that looks at things even a little bit different than maybe even a college game sometimes, right? And all those perspectives are beneficial, and I want to hear them. I may not act on them. And I, a lot of times, will say, listen, at the end of the day, the final decision is mine, right? And don't take that personal. You make a comment or you say, let's try this, and I don't go in that direction, you know, you can't take that person. Along that same line, if something, I forget specifically the game last year, but a team was playing us a different defense than we had seen at that point in the year. And Coach Hanna, my full-time assistant, going into halftime, he said, how about if we try this? My first response was, that's not going to work. Like, we're not trying. And the more we talked about it, just figured, you know, we have a chance at halftime to at least put it on the board. We'll run at the first possession of the second half. Let's see if it works, right? So we went in, go through some of the things that we're not doing. We weren't really playing that great in that game, as you can probably tell. And so I put it up on the board, and then all of a sudden, we come out the first possession of the second half. We run it. We score. We went to that like three or four times. Team comes out of the defense, probably won us the game. So after the game, talking to the team, I wanted to make sure that I gave him the credit. And I actually went through the scenario with the team and said, you know, this is kind of a team building thing. Like coaches are teams too, right? And I had to be able to listen to what he was saying. And that was able to win a game for it. Same thing if you're on the court, you have to be able to listen to somebody that's giving you a suggestion, whether it be a coach or a teammate and be able to see that. So I think it was a teachable moment. Now that doesn't mean all the time people probably understand that I'm listening. Coach Thornton, like I said, has been with me for eight years, the longest. He will at times tell assistants, especially young assistants coming in, just keep throwing stuff out there. You might not think he's listening, but he listens to everything you say. And at some point, it'll jumble around in there. He may come back to it. So just keep throwing stuff at it. So I probably have that look sometimes like, I, you know, I'm, I'm not really listening to you, okay. <laughs> but I really am. Coach, I know this question has a lot to do with opportunity that presents itself, but what responsibility do you feel to telling your assistants maybe when it's time for them to leave? Whether like, hey, after the season, I think it's now, not now or never, but it's going to be a good time. Like you need to, if you want to be a head coach, you're ready. It's time for you to move on. Yeah. I want to be able to have that conversation fluidly in developing relationships. I think as long as you're being transparent in your conversation both ways, and I want to try to facilitate that, right? Like I never want an assistant coach to try to go behind my back, right? And I've heard that before, like, some assistant coaches will say, I can't really take this to my head coach because he'll think I'm jumping ship or whatever it may be and, and not being respectful. So 
we get to know each other. Not everybody's dream is to be a head coach. So for those that want to be a head coach or for those that want a different position, you know, we have that conversation on here is what they at least envision their end goal to be. And obviously that can change a lot. You know, you go to Coach Potts and he was with me for 13 years. He did a great job. We kind of got to know when it was two, three years away from when he got a head coaching position. And probably a little bit before that, he was ready. He might not have thought he was ready, but he was ready. And we would have honest conversations about here are things that we need to do to be able to try to get you more exposed so that when your time comes, you can hit the ground running. Because it's one thing to get the job. It's another thing to be able to get the job and be productive when you get there. If you're not in this business, you can be out in two or three years. That's one reason why I like to expose them to everything so that they're not getting any surprises if they're a head coach. And then since Coach Potts left, one of my former players, Anthony Ross, was with me. And Anthony was very transparent early on that he wanted to eventually get the Division One. Well, East Stroudsburg's Division Two, right? So we went through that for a couple of years, and I knew what his dream was. And he got the opportunity to go to Central Connecticut. It was time for him because his clock was ticking, right? Then we go to Muhammadu Kaaba. Muhammadu Kaaba was a player for me. He actually went into the teaching sector for one year. Didn't like answering bells in high school. So he approached me. So he came back to the GA. And then when Coach Ross left, we elevated. And he did a good job for two, three years. I thought he was ready. He thought he was ready. There was an opportunity presented himself. He's a head coach at the Division Three level. So Coach Potts, who was with me 13 years, and Coach Cabot, who's with me three, is a totally different situation, right? But being able to have that conversation on you're ready and being able to give them the confidence that they're ready, I think is really important. We're excited to partner with one of our favorite new analytics platforms, Hoopsalytics, a high-powered, affordable, and easy-to-use video and analytics system for coaches of all levels at a fraction of the price of some of the other platforms available. Unlike other systems, Hoopsalytics lets you create fully customizable events and sets and analyzes them for you through video link stats, interactive shot charts, and other tools zero programming is required. For a free trial and to receive a 25% discount on the product, visit hoopsalytics.com slash glass. That's hoopsalytics.com slash glass. And now back to our conversation. We want to transition now on the court a little bit and discuss post play and, and playing through the post and just getting to know your team a little bit. I know that you're someone that a pressing team will get up and put pressure on the ball. But then offensively, you like to put pressure, obviously, by playing through the post or through the elbows and all that sort of stuff. I'll let you discuss it more in a second. But it's sort of an interesting dichotomy as far as when a team's pressing and trapping or you know putting a lot of pace on the game to then also say, hey, we're going to play through the post quite a bit. You don't see it quite as much. And so it's an interesting style and one we like to kind of dive in on with you. So to start, why you value playing through the posts so much? I think the biggest reason is it gives you balance. And I think when you get to the end of the year, hopefully you're good enough, right? Where you're getting opportunities to play in conference playoffs, maybe the NCAA tournaments, those type of things. I think you need to have a balanced team, right? So for us, being able to play inside out is a way to get that balance. It's been successful for us. Again, I go back to when I was here as an assistant with Coach Menasana. We had a horse by the name of John Roberts, who was one of the best players in Division II basketball. And he could dominate the post, right? So kind of in my formative years, I was able to see it and experience it a little bit. And then Sal would actually give me the big guys to be able to work with. And being able to, to do that, that's kind of where I cut my teeth. And I knew that there was benefit there. As the games evolved, you know, I'll hear this a little bit in a lot of different situations, right? When the hand check came in, I don't know, five, six years ago, and they were really going to, officials were going to call every hand check and it was going to be exposed, right? I would have people call me and call Coach Potts and say, well, you guys aren't going to be able to press you. Are you going to put in a zone defense? I haven't played any zone except for when we had a fight one time and we had like five guys suspended and we had six players. That was the only time we played zone in my career. here. So we just went to... We're going to teach it better. We're not going to hand check. We're going to be better in traps, those type of things. And then segue that to now where, you know, more is like dribble drive and or five out, those type of things. I think people assume that I'm going to get away from the post game. 
but I think it's actually given us more of an advantage, maybe both of those scenarios, because not as many people are playing it that way. If people aren't exposed to it on a daily basis within the way they play, it can give us an advantage because our guys should be better offensively than the guy trying to guard them in the post. The challenge with that is at the other end of the floor sometimes. You have to have big guys that are mobile enough. If you're going to stay big, our big guys aren't really that big because of the way we play. But if you're going to have big guys, they got to be mobile, especially with teams now that are playing a lot of five out or pick and pop or whatever it may be. Those guys have to be able to move their feet on the perimeter. And that's actually, to me, has been more, a little bit more of a challenge at the defensive end rather than the offensive end. Coach, when a post player or a big joins your program and you start working with them, what is the fundamental or the building blocks that you're going to start to put in with him on an individual basis and the team and the practice? So we'll start actually kind of hold apart. We'll talk about the rim run first because hopefully we're getting a lot of those opportunities in transition and we let our four and five compete for that spot. So it's a situation where both guys have to know the first trail and the second trail. They're basically partners on the floor. So we'll start with the rim run. You know, you obviously, we call it a hawk. You don't have a hawk situation. Now you're looking for an early post, teaching them how to get that post position, posting right on the rim, which has been actually very good for us because a lot of people will try to take away our perimeter players. That allows them to be one-on-one in the low post. And then from there, one thing that I've seen that guys need a little bit more attention to, especially these days, is being able to understand how to get seals, keep seals, keep their body on somebody. Today, I think a lot more guys aren't used to being able to put their body on a defender and being able to, to read a pass and get a seal. Then we'll start with that whole progression. I keep things in the low post pretty simple. We're not teaching 16 moves. We might give them three or four or five options at the most add a lot of things with them coming into the post, whether it be off cross screens, up screens, diagonals, whatever it may be. Again, teaching them how to get seals and those type of things, duck-in situations, reverse pivot situations, and we'll drill that every day. Sometimes, you know, my guys kind of almost look at it like, here we go again. Here's the first 10 minutes of practice, right? And we're going to start with the hawk. We're going to start with the early post. We're going to draw the hash. We're going to work on duck-ins. We're going to reverse on reverse pivots. And then if we extend that out, now we're going to start getting into the screen and roll situation, screen and pop situation, screen and slip situations. And then we'll end up with the progression of the bigs being able to enter the ball to the low post themselves, right? So we'll get them work on a four-man getting into the low post, five-man out of the low post, being able to shoot that jump shot, being able to dump it into the low post and kind of break things down there. Coach, a lot of good stuff. I just like to, since we're on it, how are you working too with your four and five kind of spacing around each other, depending on what, if one's involved in the pick and roll or one's posting up, how is that kind of dance that you're working on with your, both your bigs? So what we've done traditionally, one of the things I'm thinking about tweaking this year is to give us a little bit different library. But what we've done in most cases is be four out one in. Let's say a five has gone to a ball screen, right? The four is going to be on the perimeter. Let's say it's an outside-outside screen, right? So let's say the four-man follows into a ball screen on the perimeter and the five-man's in a low post, but we know the four-man's going to roll based on his communication. Now the four-man will roll, the five-man will either pop behind him or get out opposite, right? And we give them that option, and then they're able to play off of each other in that way with good spacing. A lot of times we'll get into double ball screens where you know four and five will be in ball screen situations. We'll let them read it. Whatever the first guy does, the second guy goes opposite. Again, getting into a four-out, one-in. One thing I've played around with a lot this summer is being able to diversify that a little bit and give them the option of being four-out, one-in, or for a period of time being five-out. Because I do have mobile bigs that are able to do some things on the perimeter that I think we can do a little bit more of that with. That's going to come down to a lot of coaching because our big guys have been pretty good. I have returning player of the year this year who's an inside guy, about 6'6", really good athlete. And then I have a second team all-conference guy coming back. And then my subs actually are pretty good that can do some things in the post. So I don't want to just sacrifice. I want to make our library a little bit different so that they have some different options. From a teaching perspective, if you're working on this spacing, when you do individual breakdowns, how are you guess, I guess, drilling it? Or is it more of a thing you got to be like 5-0, 4-0 to really kind of just and just work with them in the spacing? Or can you work on their spacing in small groups when it's just bigs? I think, again, going to kind of the breakdown situation, we'll start with 
breakdowns that are one-on-one. And then within that group, if we're staying strictly with big, then we'll work on the bigs like being opposite. And we'll put them in some situations like the coaches will get out there, right? We'll do some things screen and roll and we'll work on those guys rolling and popping and getting in a situation. One guy goes in, the other guy gets out, right? And to them that. Then there'll be times in practice when we do breakdown drills where we'll split the bigs and the guards up and put some bigs with guards. And again, in small groups, being able to work on that spacing. And then we do do a lot of 5 on those stuff. We do a lot of 5 on action where that's our primary emphasis is working on spacing for the entire team. And then as we're looking at the big guys specifically, the big guy coaches are kind of really harping on trying to get that spacing and maintaining that spacing throughout. So it's a little bit of everything. And again, I think in doing it a little bit differently every day, the one-on-one stuff they're going to do every day, right? But then how do you get into the small group, the five-on-o, those type of things? Like it gives them a variety, which I think keeps them fresh. Staying on just the skill set of your posts. One thing when, you know, we're watching your film of your post play is just they play with under such control. And I would imagine something that's repped daily in your individual stuff, but your team stuff. But when you get someone in your program that wants to, I guess, play fast in the post, catch it and make a move right away, or, you know, like you said, do a bunch of different moves to try to score versus the more mature veteran one that can catch it, take their time, get to their spots. How do you kind of help with that process as a post player? When they're young, a lot of times they don't understand about being able to keep their body on somebody, right? I I mentioned that a little bit earlier. We do a lot with SEALs. We do a lot with being the first guy to react to the pass, getting into the defender's thighs and try to stand them up. And then from a spacing standpoint individually, when you're in the low post, here's your sweet spot. Here's the spots you got to hit on the floor, right? I call them marks. Here are the marks you got to be able to hit on the floor. And if you're on that mark, you get one drill, right? Because in the college game, you're going to have a lot of big outs. You're going to have a lot of double teams, those type of situations. So as you're catching the ball, your move is going to be dictated by where you're sealed. If you get a guy on your top side, you know you're on the baseline side, right? So we do a lot of, I call them power moves at the baseline, jump hooks or that type of thing to the middle of the floor. The guy's right behind you. You have both of those moves, plus we teach some front turns, some inside pivots. That's about as complex as we get. More of what our teaching is, is what are you doing before you get the ball? Because it's too late to have a plan once you get it. So we want to make sure we know where our seal is. We want to make sure we know where our angles are. Here's what we're doing when we get the ball on our mark. If you don't get the ball on your mark, pick it out and play again. We'll work on a lot of repost situations. Because a lot of times if you catch it off your mark and you throw it back out and you get back in, you're going to catch it three feet from the basket because the defender is going to relax. And that's hitting your mark the second time. Sometimes that's our best look being able to throw it out and get it back. And then we do a lot in conjunction with the guards. You know, if if guards or bigs on a perimeter, and then this comes down to drill situations again, anywhere the ball moves from a dribble standpoint, if it's, you know, taken into the paint from the baseline, you have a rim spot. Catch it on your mark. If it's from the perimeter, you're getting to a lunge in the short corner. You're hitting your mark. And we do a lot of daily breakdowns on those type of scenarios so guys know where their marks are. And then once they catch the ball, keeping it simple. Like, we don't need complex, right? You're not getting three dribbles. Tell my perimeter guys, you're only getting two dribbles on the perimeter as well, three if you get a ball screen, right? Keep it simple. A lot of times when you see the ball stop, and we do this a lot, too much, you know, guys are calling for ball screens. It's too late, right? We need to keep the ball moving. When we're playing our best, we're keeping the ball moving. Guys are reacting within a second of the catch of, I know I got a shot. I know I had my duck in for my big. If I don't, I know I can take it off the bounce. That has to be like that. And if you don't have it, reverse it and get it out of your hand. If the ball screen's coming, it's coming as you're catching the ball. You're not waiting and calling for it out unless it's an end-the-clock situation. So just being able to go through that progression and teach it, believe me, we have a lot to work on. And that's kind of where the film comes in. I'm a big believer in film. We watch a ton of film. During season in particular, pretty much on a daily basis, we'll have our position groups where they'll just come in and watch film. Like, here's yesterday's practice. Here's yesterday's game. Here's our upcoming opponent. These are situations that we're going to say are going to be open, and this is how we're going to game plan for school X. Coach, 
I'd love to just follow up because I think it's a great teaching point on something you said earlier with your bigs, reacting to the past. And so I guess, yeah, if you can just elaborate on that, what you mean, what you're telling the guys in order to react to the past. So what I mean by that is, let's say the ball's in the slot and it's going to the wing, right? Let's say maybe we're on a, we're ducking into the rim line and now the ball leaves the slot and is on its way to the wing. As the ball leaves the passer, he has to be on his way to either the post up at the hat or sprinting to a ball screen. And that's his decision. It's when the ball's leaving the passer's hand, not when it gets to where it's gone. Same thing if the ball's on the wing coming back into the slot. He might be on the hatch. He has to beat the defender of the duck in. And if he beats the defender of the duck in, most times he's getting the ball and scoring because that guy's going to be on his back. That reaction can't be when the ball gets to the slot because he's never going to get to the rim line. It all is predicated upon reacting first to the pass. Just quickly, Coach, when you said on that example where you're going slot to wing and you give the post player have the option to duck in or sprint to the ball screen, is it solely just preference or is the pen maybe on where he's actually ended up at the moment that dictates like, well, this makes more sense to go to the ball screen then? Some of that will be on scouts as we go into a game plan. You know, maybe a team isn't really guarding side screen roll as well. Maybe we don't want to set a lot of sideball screens. Maybe we want to set our screens in the slot that night because they're going to show us down situations where we're not going to get much off the screen and roll. A lot of that is based on scout situations, but also it's teaching them how to play and giving them the ability to read that. I'll overcoach it in practice. I'm not going to overcoach it in game. I want to give them the ability to read what's going on. And obviously, if it's not working, then you know, we in a timeout or in a sub situation, be able to say. Hey, you've done this three times and it hasn't worked. Like, let's go to the next option, right? And I think as guys go through their career, they get a pretty good feel for, okay, I got my guy on the back this time. And it's a guard that can get me the ball. Sometimes it's that too. It's not just like I have position. And a lot of times with big guys, you got to be able to teach that. And I harp with our guys in position breakdowns of, you got to be there every time. Like if you're getting to a mark, you got to be there every time. Because the one time that you're not there, the guard's going to say, I looked in the post and you weren't there. So you can't give a guard that situation. You can't give a guard that excuse. you got to be on your mark every time, right? Believe me, I still hear it. Like, he's not getting me the ball. I, I'm open. Well, you aren't on your mark. I wouldn't throw it to you either. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> With teams that were maybe you didn't have good passing guards or guards that couldn't throw entry passes, how would you look to solve that situation then? Ooh, find better guards. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it happens. I mean, you know, one thing that you can never take for granted as a college coach, maybe especially at the Division II level, is a lot of times guys aren't great passers with their weak hand. If you're a left-handed guy, you're not a great passer with your right hand on the right side of the floor. We can't just sub you when you're on that side of the floor, unfortunately. So just trying to make them understand that what are their angles being able to get the ball into the post? How do you make a dribble to be able to give yourself a better angle? Because a lot of it comes down to angle. A lot of times guys get lazy with it and they don't really try to create the angle to get the ball into the post. So now all of a sudden, whereas maybe you're an average or maybe below average passer, you can improve your angle to make yourself a better passer or give yourself a better opportunity to get it in the post. And then obviously the other thing with that is if you can shoot, people are going to close you out a lot harder. Right. So if you're a perimeter guy and you can shoot, you give yourself an advantage. If you can't shoot, people are going to short close you out. And most of the angles are going to be taken away anyway. So the better shooters you have, a lot of times your better passers are going to be. And coach, just quickly on the entry pass stuff, do you have any preferred way to actually enter it from a guard, whether it's bounce, whether it's an air pass? Is there a way that you teach to try to help them with that entry pass? In most cases, we'll drill as well, like hard closeouts where the guy's closing out hands low to try to take away that pass, knowing that we're trying to get the ball into the post. So we're saying if a guy's hands low, we're going to throw it right past his ear. So we'll drill that a little bit. But preference is I want the ball passed into the post on the back, especially if we're trying to have our post guy engage with the defender. You don't want him standing up because now the defender is going to push him off his mark. So in trying to get your mark, we want to try to engage the defender get into his thighs. It's a war in there. It's physical, a lot more physical than a lot of people think. So we don't want a guy being taken out of his athletic position because the ball's passed up in the air 
and they have to be able to try to go up and get it. Now they're playing straight land. I want my guys to play in an athletic position. So the only way to keep them in an athletic position is be able to throw the ball into the post with a bounce pass. Just kind of zooming back out over this whole post conversation for a second is just with it being a physical and demanding way to play do you see any other benefits to your team maybe from an identity or a culture standpoint or a toughness standpoint that when you're constantly playing through the post and working on in practice and doing the game besides the tactical edge that you said not a lot of people play against it but does it help in any other areas of your program to kind of have that mentality i think number one it goes back to the balance aspect if you look at some of our better teams, our point guards are kind of their own guy. My wings are kind of part, and then my fours and fives are part. And a lot of times on the, my better teams, probably from at least a scoring standpoint, a balance standpoint, you would almost be a fifth, two fifths, two fifths. And that's when we've been really good is when we've had that balance, not just playing through the post and those guys scoring 70% of the basket. You need good guard play too, believe me, right? So being able to have that balance overall with your big guys, I think for them, yeah, they get into the kind of the toughness factor, the speed factor, the skill factor, being able to get the ball inside and be able to do things. And the fact that we're going to make an emphasis to try to get the ball inside. I think the big guys in our program, as they've matured and they've shown the ability to do things, I think one thing that they've developed is that mindset of, I can get the ball in the post and I can score. And coach is going to make an emphasis to try to get it in. Doesn't mean we're getting it in all the time. More often than not, we're not because they have to be on that mark all the time. But we are going to look and we are going to try to get it in. And we're going to make a conscious effort to be able to do that. And I think that helps the guards have a knowledge of where they're trying to get the ball. Here are your looks. You either have a shot, you have a pass to the post, or you have a drive. And you have to make that decision within a minute or a second. If you don't have it, reverse it, get it out of your hands and let somebody else play. Sometimes we don't do it that that fluid, but that's kind of how we want to play. And then the other situation with that is because of the press, hopefully we're playing a lot in transition, right? So we're getting that guy running to the rim, whether he's there or not. If we have good bigs, it makes the job a lot easier for the guard because the help will go to the big. So if we have two wings spreading the floor and we have a big spread to the rim line, and I have a really good big, one of those guard defenders has gone into the post and try to help. We want our point guards to what we call play across traffic, where he gives himself as many options as possible, one of them being a drive. So who's helping? If Carlos Pepin has run into the rim line, and we know that Carlos can score it there, and everybody else knows that he has an advantage if he can get there as well, well, one of the guard defenders is coming in to help. They're not just going to let their guy get worn out all day. That frees up some advanced passes to the guards where we're now we're getting three, right? So the better our big guys play is, the better our guards are going to be. And oh, by the way, the better our guard play is, the better our big guys are going to be because they're not going to dump. Coach, great stuff. This has been awesome so far. We want to transition into a segment we call start, sub, or sit. So kind of a lightning round where we'll give you three different topics, ask you to start one, sub one, and sit one and then we'll have a discussion around your answer from there this is where coach Potts said it got hairy with me. <laughs> <laughs> this first start sub or sit question is about undercover value in your half court offense so these are going to be three different player traits that you know perhaps don't pop up on a scout sheet right away or perhaps you know when you're going recruiting it's not the first thing you see but as you get into your half-court offense, you understand these three things are like really valuable to helping an offense run smoothly in the half-court. So start, sub, or sit, a player that's a great cutter, just a naturally understands how to cut. The second option is someone that's a great screener, perhaps when you're big, who just knows how to screen the angles, all that stuff. And the third option is someone that just has a knack for offensive rebounding. Wow. Uh, <laughs> they're, all, they're all important. <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, so... Whoever's sitting is going to be in trouble on this. One. <laughs> I would say number one would be the great cutter. You know, if you have guys that know how to play and know how to get open, whether it be reading screens or reading back cuts, those type of things, I think they give themselves an advantage and they give their all the offense an advantage. The second thing I would go with the sub being the great screener, especially the way we play. We get into a lot of screening situations as the shot clock goes on and a lot of end of clock, 
that actually could be a potential start as well, just because of the end of clock situations. I'll keep them at the sub for now. And then the offensive rebounder, you know, that's a tough one for me to totally sit because I tell my guys all the time that there's a role for a guy on the team like that, right? If you have a guy that can get your four points off the offensive glass, you know, that's a role that not everybody likes to take, right? Because that's a lot of effort. Ball goes up in the air. We send three through five to the glass. Who's a little bit more determined? That's a tough one to sit, but <laughs> if I have to make the decision, I'll sit that one for now because they're probably going to know that that's a way to get on the floor at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so sitting, but not too far down the bench, maybe just sitting. That's right. They're the 11th or 12th, man. They're not totally down to the 15th. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, <laughs> coach, loved hearing your answers. And obviously these are three unbelievable traits to have in players. So we understand that for sure. I'd love to start with your sub, the great screener. And, you know, in watching you play, one of the things that you guys seem to do really well is set screens by your post, man, going back to our post conversation and then seal right after that. And so how do you think about, I guess, connecting those two things where teaching your guys to screen and then seal, whether it's a pick and roll situation or say a pin down to a post or something like that? Yeah. Again, that's going to go back into our daily breakdowns, you know, especially as we try to game plan for people as we go early on in the year with our individual workouts that we get some limited time with guys during the course of things. We'll do that in smaller groups, right? And talk about here's where your seal is going to be. Here are your options off screen situation, whether it be a seal or a pop or whatever it may be. And then all the same stuff with the ball screens, right? Are you holding it? Are you popping it? Are you slipping it? Those situations, are you twisting it? What are you doing off all those situations? And we'll just put some coaches out there early in the year saying, here's where your defender is going to be, right? And this is what your counter is going to be. I believe as a post guy or a screener, you're always in counter situation. You're reading what's going on and you're countering what the read is. We will spend a lot of time with that. And as the year goes on, we'll bring them in for a lot of film work. And on this day, hey, you weren't reading the counters very right? Or whatever it may be. So they get conditioned to be able to see those things. Coach, if I were just to give you the situation of, you know, you're setting a down screen and whether the defense chases or let's say they try to cheat and go over, what are you then you working with your bigs? What are you and how they screen? And then, like you said, the counters or the seals afterwards. What I mean by that is that's going to be dependent upon what the guard's decision is. Or is it a set play? There'll be some situations maybe if we're trying to get a cross screen situation, small on big, we'll pop the big. We'll set the cross screen with a guard off of maybe a hard curl or a pinch situation off the down screen. And now that big will be coming off the cross screen. That's a set situation, maybe off a set play. As we're trying to get our guys to understand how to play, our guards how to play, we'll do the same breakdowns with the guard. This is how you're going to be played on this situation, right? If the guy's on your outside shoulder and you're coming off a down screen, you should be looking to hard curl that screen. Right, because he's going to try to shoot the gap if you soft curl. If he's on your inside shoulder, in most cases, you're going to want to soft curl that, right? Because your screener, if he's doing his job, is going to be able to get you at least a step or a half a step on the catch if you soft curl it, because the guy's on the inside shoulder. And then if he tries to shoot the gap, we're going to fade it, which is a totally different footwork for the big. We're going to rescreen and post on that situation to try to take the, the guy that's coming through the middle. We're going to try to take him higher. On the down screen and soft curl situation, as soon as that guy gets to the hip, we do touch points, right? And now he's going to seal as soon as he gets to the hip, and we're going to try to get to that rim line, if at all possible, on the seal back. So if you did watch some film and you saw that, that's something that we do a lot of breakdown stuff with with our guards. Here's your read on what your defender is doing. Big guys, when you read the guard make the situation, you're now counter. All right, Coach. Our last start sub sit for you has to do with your press. We'd be a little remiss if we didn't talk a press with you. So the topic of this is kind of the secondary benefits of a press that you like. So start being kind of the most benefit that you can get out or why you press. So is it the ability to limit the half court offense of the other team, you know, make them run some clock off so they're working with a shorter clock in the half court? Is it maybe the ability to create poor shot selection by the other team? Or is it just the mental warfare, just knowing that when they're going to play your team, they're going to get pressed and they're going to have to deal with it? I think all of them are important. I'm going to start 
the mentality aspect. I'm going to sub the shot selection. And number three, I'm going to go with the shortened shot clock. And the reason I would go with those specifically, number one, the kind of our mantra motto is relentless. And that's in all different ways. We even want to be relentless in the classroom, but that's a different thing, right? So when we brought up the word, Coach Potts was here, we went with attitude, commitment, class. That got to be way too wordy. We didn't use the word a lot. Now, anytime you come in our building, you'll see relentless all over the place. My office, you'll see relentless all over the place. And recently, that took even a different meaning for our program. I had a young man by the name of Ryan Smith, who as a freshman might have been the best player in our region, potentially. As a freshman, he was a really good player. He developed leukemia, AML leukemia, after his freshman year. And he had a 19-month battle with leukemia. And kind of through all his rehabilitation, chemo treatments, those type of things, his mantra was relentless. And his name was Ryan Smith. So he took the big R, the big S at the end, right? And that was his thing. And that really showed us what kind of relentless was, right? And so anytime you look at the way we're trying to go, we're trying to trigger that mindset. And I think the running, the pressing is a way to be able to do that. It makes us a little bit different. Again, there's a million styles out there that win. We don't win every game by any stretch of the imagination. We just want to play the way we want to play. So I'm going to start relentless and mentality. I'm going to sub the shot selection over the course of 40 minutes. We want to be in situations where we're hopefully forcing the opponent into shots that they don't practice, which are in a lot of cases, maybe turnover. We also want to try to get, we don't preach really steals. We preach deflections. We want to see how many hands-on ball situations we can get during the course of the game. Sometimes that speeds people up and they make bad decisions, take bad shots. And then the condensed shot clock, I'm going to set that one because we're trying to speed the game up. We're not really trying to slow it down. Obviously, that's going to happen with some teams. It's more effective than others being at the end of the shot clock, but we want to still be in situations where we're speeding the game up. Coach, my follow maybe it's a question about both the shot selection and speeding the game up. What worries you or give you a little bit more angst teams willing to run, but are also willing to maybe, and with competency can shoot the early three pointers versus a team that's going to beat your press and then slow it up and just get methodical with their half court offense. Both of them have their unique challenge, right? Both of them scare the hell out of me, to be honest with you. (laughs) (laughs) That's one of those things you kind of control the controllables. You kind of play the way you want to play. We tell our guys all the time, like, let's say we're clicking at the beginning of a game. There's no lead that's too big because there's so many possessions in the course of our game, you have to play all 40 minutes, right? So whether that's a team that's trying to run it back and has good shooters, that's going to allow you to more easily play your style. Now, maybe they're just really good at it, right? (laughs) You might not be successful that night on that. And then the other situation is, you know, we have some teams that we have traditionally played that play a little bit slower when they get through the press. That almost for a coach, I try to trigger a little bit differently. Hey, we're not going to have the tempo of the entire game the way we want it. Right? This is not going to be a 90-possession game. right? This might be a 65-possession game. Or that team may want to play a 60-possession game. Our job is to make it a 70 to 75. We're not going to get to 90, 95 tonight as far as possession goes. We want to try to get them out a little bit out of their realm. And that might be for a four- or five-minute span. Right, Maybe a spurt in the first half, spurt in the second half. But we want to continue to play the way we want to play. Right, We want to see, can we get the tempo to our, to our liking for at least a portion of that game? If we can, that's going to give us the benefit. If we can't, it's going to be the benefit of that team that night. On that note, against the teams that will slow it down, will you talk to your team and maybe trying to dial up? Maybe let's be a little bit more aggressive with trapping or running and jumping? Or is it more just kind of like we just got to try to exert ourselves but doing what we do we press multiple ways we have run jump we have a couple different zone presses some of those might be more effective against a team that's going to play a little bit slower that's one way to kind of tweak it a little bit you know we may do some things at the front of the press that are a little bit different to maybe speed them up maybe face guard or take a guy off the inbounder to try to take away some angles, those type of things that are a little bit different. We're constantly going to tweak it. We're not going to go in and just say, here's our run and jump, and we're just going to run and jump the same way every time. We practice all of our presses every day. We're going to have some aspect of our practice that's going to be live play, and we're going to press 
during those live situations, right? And when we get in the game, we're going to be able to tweak them. And sometimes in practice, we're going to say, even at the beginning of the year, like, this is what the team's going to try to do. So our scout team's going to run this press break today, the entire day. And we're going to try to adapt to it by doing these things because in the past we've had trouble with these type of scenarios. I think you mentioned if you want to try to speed the team up, you'll face guard the guards. Why does that speed the team up? Have you found that it speeds them up when you're going to face guard them? Well, you're a guard, so you're taking some offense to the pressing stuff. Obviously, you're a pretty good point <laughs> yes. guard, so you make good decisions and everybody just cleared out for you, right? So, that's right, that's right. <laughs> so a lot of times if you're face guarding a guy, what's going to be the inbounder's solution to that? And sometimes maybe even the guard getting the ball. He's going to maybe try to get it over the top. Yeah, top. yeah. Which now is going to put him in an uncontrolled dribble situation, which is automatically speeding him up or hopefully speeding him up over time. Like, it may not right away, but he may get it, be very controlled. He may get it, be very controlled. And then he may try to beat it. Now all of a sudden we're getting a flick from behind, which is a deflection for us. Coach, with pressing and working on becoming a great pressing team, I'm always interested in the practice element of it. And if pressing is something because there's so many gray areas and so many decisions that need to be made full court, does it always need to be practiced five on five kind of live full court? Or do you have you know small-sided three on three not five on five, basically games that help work on decisions and pressing, or does it mostly just take place five on five? We'll do a lot of breakdown drills. Some of those are two on two. Some of them are three on three. Some of them are four on four. So guys understand angles. So some guys understand how to get into a trap. What's a good trap look like? What's a bad trap look like? How do you get out of a trap to now become an interceptor? We do multiple breakdown drills a day in season. You know, maybe we play a team on uh, Wednesday and we didn't do some things. Maybe we didn't close traps well, or maybe we didn't come out of traps well. We're going to start the next practice or the next situation. We're going to watch film. We take a big TV right to the court with us. So at that point of the practice, when we're, we have a little bit of a break, we're going to show them maybe four or five bad traps or situations where they don't come out of a trap well. And this is the reason we're doing the breakdown. And then we'll do the breakdown and then we'll bring it back to hole at the end. We'll start with some breakdowns. If a team has a specific press break that we know they're going to run, we'll give our scout team that press break to run. We'll walk through it. Here's where we want to get our traps. Here's where we view our angles are going to be best. Here's where, you know, you're not shrinking the court at the back of it. So there's too many holes. We'll go through all that stuff and walk through it, but then we're going to play. Coach, you are off the start, sub, or sit hot seat. Thanks for playing that game with us. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. Good questions, and uh, you gave me a lot of good options. So uh, (laughs) I have a pretty deep team. That's what I can tell from that, right? Yeah. yeah, Yes, exactly. Exactly. Coach, we've got one more question for you before we do. Thanks again for your time and your thoughts this morning. This was a lot of fun. We learned a lot. I appreciate you guys having me on. Coach, our last question that we ask all the guests is, What's the best investment that you've made in your career as a coach? So I'm going to give you two answers here. I'm going to give you the generic answer of something off the floor, which would be golf. I'm not a really good golfer, but it's a game that humbles me. You know, I'm trying to get better. Coach Potts wants to take a lot of money from me when we play. So (laughs) I I think he's like a six handicap. I'm about a 16 or 18. And he never tries to give me any strokes. I can't figure out why that is. (laughs) You know, and, and I just got back from Scotland. We took a uh, trip over there and played golf. It was the first time I've ever been over there. It actually freed my mind up a little bit. I don't know why the hell I haven't done it before, but it won't be the last time I try to do something like that. So that would be an investment off the floor. And then I'll give you the one that kind of came to mind first would be kind of service to the game in a different way. You know, I had the opportunity to represent the Atlantic region as a person NCAA regional rep. Then I had the opportunity and the privilege to be the chair of Division II Basketball Championships Committee for two years. And all told, I was in those roles for about seven years. Now I do some things with the NCAA and also the NABC because I thought it was beneficial. It just freed my mind up in a different way. So even during the course of a season, you know, you might be in a situation where, you know, you're playing Monday, Wednesday, where you got a rack call on Tuesday and you got to try to rank these teams. So you have to do some work on Monday. So instead of me worrying about who I got on Wednesday, I'm taking an hour or two and I'm I'm trying to reprogram my mind and look at 
you know, what are we doing from a basketball perspective in the country division too? And for me, I've continued to want to do that service because it's been able to kind of free me up and kind of reprogram me a little bit. Sometimes you can just get caught in the weeds a little bit too much. So I would say those two things would be the investments, one being financial, the other being more just my time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the free newsletter, Slapping Glass Plus, and much more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping backboard. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like That's that. Good. Those are all <laughs> slapping glass.